Welcome, friends, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and, you know, I am so proud to say voted one of the most influential women of goddess spirituality because of this very show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. So, uh, again, I thank you so much for your support and your listener loyalty. Each one of you, I consider you uh, part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine family from wherever you are listening from. And please remember, it's important, hit the follow button on the show page so you know who my guest is each week because I don't always have time to send out uh, promotional reminders and uh, that way uh, you'll always know what's going on here at Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And that cut opening tonight's show was Narayana by Diva Haley. It's on her Sacred Alchemy DVD. Uh, check it out uh, a lot. Uh, CD, I mean. Uh, check it out. There's a lot of powerful and beautiful music there. Well, tonight uh, we have yet another great show lined up for you. I certainly think uh, Kathy Pagano is back uh, to fill us in on the cosmic story so we know what to expect from the universe in the coming weeks as the cosmos and the heavens do their thing. How will they potentially affect us? I don't know about you, but I am so glad Mercury Retrograde ended this week. By the end of this period, I felt like I wanted to go live under a rock. Um, You know, it just felt like here in L.A., people were particularly crazy and chaotic. Um, And, you know, it really expressed itself out on the streets, Um, you know, just the normal give and take on the road. um, You know, it wasn't happening, you know. Uh, in in many ways, you know, I felt like even just in dealing with people, I had to really put out effort to hold back, to bite my tongue, to not let myself be provoked. And then you think, you know, look at everything that's been going on in the news, you know, Uh, the stuff that's happening in Israel and Palestine, the stuff that's happening in the Ukraine. Um, I mean, the stuff that's happened with the, the stuff Supreme that's happening Court. here with the Supreme Court, yeah. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, there's just so much stuff to be angst-ridden about. You know, it. I think it has everybody on edge. So I'm hoping Kathy is going to say the next couple weeks might be better. So we're going to get to her in a minute. <laughs> and then after Kathy, we got Dan Unterbrink with us. He's the author of Judas of Nazareth. Yes, I didn't say Jesus. Judas of Nazareth, an interesting book linking Jesus of Nazareth with Judas the Galilean. He's going to tell us why he believes the historical Jesus was not the gospel Jesus of Nazareth, we all know, but a man of history called Judas of Nazareth. Interesting. So we're going to get into who was the historical Jesus, who was the historical Paul, and who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, you might say, why in the world does Karen have this show on? You know, why do goddess advocates care about this? 
Well, you know, I guess besides many of us or maybe former Christians or maybe we might still, you know, have our toe in that camp a little bit, um, it also reminds us how history can get distorted. That's the key. And we certainly know it's been distorted when it comes to goddess. So, you know, if there's just so much out there, you know, you, you wonder, you know, you're lucky to know all the questions, uh, much less, you know, can we be sure we really have all the answers. But first, a few housekeeping tidbits, especially for the new listeners. Um, yes, uh, I was away last week. I missed being with you, but I got some much-needed rest, kind of, sort of. And while away, I have come up with an idea I think might be fun and useful uh, to you, my listeners. I'm thinking of restoring the What's the Buzz segment, you know, when I talk about the bees in my bonnet, but with your participation. So here's the thought. You know, I have tried uh, to be very positive. I've been trying to, uh, you know, do that in word and deed. Uh, You've probably heard me talk about it on the show with some listeners trying to figure out how to help that paradigm shift. I've been focusing on the things I'm for rather than the things I'm against in an attempt to not give the negative things any energy, like I'm for women's rights to abortion and contraception rather than I'm against the conservative Christian Republican men taking the uh, the rights of women to their bodies and reproductive lives away. But you know what? I've decided to strike a balance, or maybe I just can't keep my mouth shut. I don't know. Uh, But here's where you come in. I want to hear from you. If you're in a red state, a purple state, anywhere, outside the U.S. too, I know there are a lot of you who listen who, uh, you know, aren't here in in the U.S., Wherever you are, email me a short paragraph because, you know, everybody's got attention deficit. It's got to be short and to the point. Send me a short paragraph. Let me know how decisions being made by politicians, the Supreme Court, your local government, corporate America, how they are affecting your life. We want to make this personal. We don't want these decisions these guys make to be in the abstract. Do you no longer have access to contraception? Have you had to have a state-mandated vaginal probe? Do you experience, did you experience sexism? Is the abortion clinic in your town being closed down? Are you having problems getting ID to be able to vote, or have you been denied your right to vote? Because I know there have been a lot of primaries going on uh, for the last few months. How might you have been helped if Republicans had actually approved some of the things people like Democrat Elizabeth Warren tried to get passed in Congress? You know, this is about real people, so I think you get the idea. Let me hear from you, and I'll share your short stories on the air. Has the Supreme Court made a decision that directly affected you? What about the Tea Party or evangelicals? Right now, there's a big case in Arkansas where a pagan church is not being allowed to open its doors, and we thought there was religious freedom in this country. That's the kinds of things I mean. So let me hear from you. And by the way, I think we're going to have the pastor from that pagan church uh, on the show in the next couple weeks, and um, I'll fill you in on that story. But I'm sure you can Google it in the meantime. And we want to hear good things, too. So send me those stories as well, or things to on because we might not exactly know how we feel about some things. You know, we can see both sides of it. Like, for instance, um, it came across the Internet uh, just a couple 
days ago, the European Court of Human Rights upheld a ban by France on wearing the Muslim full-face veil, the hijab, I think is how you pronounce it. So send me your comments and thoughts. You know, maybe we'll start uh, opening the chat room if there's interest. And send me some inspirational things as well. Uh, Today I was reading some quotes uh, from an email that came out from Jean Shinoda Bolin uh, where she shared wise words from Eleanor Roosevelt. And I'll share just a couple uh, with you, and then we're going to get right on uh, to Kathy. So here are some quotes from uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, She died in uh, 1953, and she was a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. She became a chair of the UN's Human Rights Commission, and on that commission, she helped write the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, an effort that she considered to be her greatest achievement. And here are just a couple of her quotes. The first one, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I wish I'd heard that about 10 years ago. Now here's another one. A woman is like a tea bag. You never know how strong it is until it's in hot water. That's a good one. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. And finally, beautiful young people are accidents of nature, but beautiful old people are works of art. And Jean Shinoda Bowen says she uh, thinks Eleanor Roosevelt is an embodiment of the goddess Metis, one of the four archetypes of wisdom, which she talks about in one of her books, Goddesses and Older Women. So I thought that was Nice. I hope you enjoyed it, too. And uh, we're going to jump right in and welcome Kathy to the show. Hey, Kathy, thanks for coming back to us. Hey, Karen, my pleasure. So, my um, pleasure. I, well, I, and I, I am so glad to have you, and I want to know what's been going on. Uh, is there any connection between the crazy energy I've been feeling in L.A. and what's been going on in these other places around the world? And I also want to hear the good stuff, too, about the Sophia Center opening in Las Vegas. So just jump right in. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I love um, just the um, the whole process you went through about deciding to bring back something onto your program is a beautiful example of Mercury retrograde, what it can do. Mercury is the um, archetypal energy of how we use our mind, how we think. And, and since the planet is very close to the sun, it never really gets very far away from it. So it has to retrograde. It has to look as if it goes backwards three times a year. It's an orbital thing. I think we've talked about that before. But, you know, our mind can run away from us. So, you know, it's always good to have a cosmic force pull it back. So we reflect, rethink, redo, reconsider things. That's a big... um, Mercury retrograde word, re, R-E. <laughs> and so um, for you to bring back that segment is beautiful. It's a beautiful example. In terms of the craziness, I think it's probably because most of this Mercury retrograde was in its own sign of Gemini. And if you know any Geminis, you know that they are just interested in everything and they're always on the move and they're always excited and they're always, you know, it's all about let me experience this. And so that on top of all of the electrical intense energy we're all feeling um, because we still have this T-square going on in the sky, the, uh, the revolutionary change agents, if you will, up there in the sky. Um, 
So Mercury um, comes along and goes, I got the message. I got the message. There's just so many things we have to take care of. And um, and it keeps coming up. The dirt and the, and the <laughs> you know, what is decayed just keeps rising to the top. And I think hitting everybody over the head and more, I don't know, what do you think, Karen? I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that just we are work, we are doing things wrong in our world. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, you know, because I don't think we were put on this earth to be these rats on a, you know, or hamsters on a wheel or rats in a maze, you know, to uh, run around like chickens, you know, with our head cut off to make people money or to, uh, you know what I'm saying? There's so much more yeah. to life than than this greed uh, mongering, you know. Um, right. Than, it, it, then the the hate, the segregation, the divisiveness. Um, I mean, what's the point? You know, life is such an important gift. I mean, why do we want to spend it like this? That's right. Well, because right now we've been taken over by the machine. I mean, for the Supreme Court to say that a company, a corporation, has religious rights um, so that they don't have to pay for women's um, contraception is just it's like it just keeps it, it keeps getting ratcheted up higher and higher corporations yeah. are not people they don't have a religion um, if the people who own that company are religious that's great but guess what their company makes money and sells things it doesn't sell religion and right. um, you know and, and of course and, you know, if we I all know that well, I was going to say, if I can interject something here, something came across the internet today that said that Hobby Lobby, you know, the one, the company that all of this is yeah. about, that they are actually making money through uh, stock and corporations that they have interest in that uh, sell equipment that has to do with contraception and abortion. So it's total hypocrisy. Of course it is. Well, look, you, if men can get Viagra for free from, um, from insurance companies, now, if, you, if that doesn't say something about the, the um, balance of power in our culture, because guess what? If men can't get it up by themselves, that's their desire nature not working. Why? But we, as women, we're not allowed to um, make sure that we're not weighed down with many multiple pregnancies. It's just... We have reached the end of a craziness. Since you're having someone come on to talk about um, Jesus or Judas of, of Galilee or Nazareth, it's interesting because, um, you know, the balance is really between the Christ and the Sophia. If we're going to have a real partnership um, society in the future, Christ consciousness has to do with knowing that we are spiritual beings. Sophia, wisdom is all about understanding our place in the world and how to live a good life, you right. know? And so the marriage of those two is so important. The Christian part of it is so interesting because these born-again Christians, they, they believe in the Antichrist, but they don't get that our society is anti-Christ. Yes. Because our society is against spiritual consciousness. Yes. It, we live in a flat-earth consciousness of it's just a material world with no meaning. And yeah. so, of course, you know, and so they, they really need to be re-educated in their religion, most of them. <laughs> we'll go on from there. But anyway, so Mercury, <laughs> Mercury is a mind. Okay, so I, I think 
you know, we all get a little troubled by what's going on in the world, and we think, oh, my God, if we, is there any hope? Because a lot of these conservatives um, that are already in power, they're, they're taking, they're not stepping up to the plate and, and changing. But the heavens are saying the change is coming, there's no way to stop it. I think that maybe what it's doing is really having to bring up and show everybody a big, big majority, not just the cultural creatives who we are, who are a bit ahead of the game, but regular people, um, the fallacy of so much of of how the patriarchy works and things. So um, if we can just hold on to our hope in the future, I think that the, the cosmos is saying, you know what, this isn't done yet. Let's just bring up some more dirt. We're really going to see the full extent of how, it, I don't want to say evil, but it, in a way it is evil. Evil, um, how much evil they will, they're willing to perpetuate to keep in power. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like, you know, we have to be able to reach the dullest minds out there. You know, the people yes. who are like totally asleep and um, and wake them up. So and, and they're not they're not they haven't been awakened yet. <laughs> no, but slowly but surely it's coming about. Uh, more and more people who are sort of in the middle range. Let's put it that way. Uh, maybe we won't wake up um, some of the ones who are really dead asleep. But maybe like Sleeping Beauty, they'll sleep forever and never wake up. Um, <laughs> but there's a whole range of people in the middle who are educated, who believe in certain things, but um, that they, they don't like my six, my 89-year-old mother. She, you know, she bought into the story um, that she was fed. And every day as we talk, you know, she's seeing more and more how corrupt the system is. So yeah. be, I think that, that what we have to do is maintain the hope, keep telling the new story of the possibilities, and giving people hope. Because the other side of it is it's, you can't just say this is no good without providing a vision to take its place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we're all trying to do, I think. So anyway, so, I think that's what Mercury was doing. It was trying to come back and saying, how are you thinking about things? Let's get this straight. You know, is this really, is the way that we think about things in our culture, is it very supportive of um, our emotional needs? And I think everything that's happening is saying, no, it isn't. Okay, so yeah. so what do you think the next few weeks are going to be like? Is it? I mean, I realize Mercury retrograde is over, uh, but what uh, you know? What sort of energy are we going to be on? dealing with? Yeah, right. Well, first of all, everybody should just take a deep breath because it takes a couple of weeks for Mercury to get moving again, and we usually say that it, things don't really get moving until it gets back to the place where it stopped, and that's going to be by the end of the month, but. Give everybody a little bit of time um, and, you know, give everything a little bit of time if you're working on projects to really take off. But um, Mercury is just one of the energies. Uh, There's quite a few shifts this month, and so we are in the sign of cancer, and it's about nurturing our emotional bodies. And it's so important that we understand what we feel like and what our needs are. Cancer is all about the mother and about how we develop an emotional body that is happy or sad. And, of course, in America especially, but I'm sure all over the um, industrialized world, there are so many depressed people (laughs) who are on drugs, (laughs) pharmaceutical drugs to make them happy. And um, I think that 
we have to rediscover what happiness is and what joy is without um, and, and get out of that depressive place. And I think, Karen, what you were talking about is we have to stop being running like crazy just to make money. We have to come into balance. A friend of mine today called me in that Mercury retrograde. Her husband got really upset about their financial situation, I guess, and she asked me for advice, and I said, well, you know, it's silly to get divorced over that. Um, if that's where it was heading, what about if, we, if you just say, let's change our lifestyle and not have so many bills? And she said, what a good idea. Um, <laughs> I think this is, <laughs> you know, instead of running a big giant house that you, you know, um, downsize. And, yeah. and I think that we have to, um, I think the new paradigm that we're trying to build is, Smaller is better, and um, we don't think we don't need as many things as we've been told we need. And so, I think Mercury retrograde will help with that if we can reorganize the way we think about what makes life worth living. Sounds like a good idea. So there's that. Yeah, and then um, and then there's three planets that are changing direction, or at least two planets changing direction before we talk again next month. Um, Around the 17th, the planet Saturn, which has been going backwards since um, the winter, is going to go into direct motion. And it's in Scorpio. And so we've been um, dealing with relationships, intimacy. What what are the barriers that we've put up to intimacy in our life? Because of past hurts from this lifetime and other lifetimes, Saturn right now is, is in the sign of Scorpio and it's and it's all about um, how well are we going to, and um, I can't remember exactly what Eleanor Roosevelt said, but it was basically how well are we going to um, like ourselves and not let other people's opinions about us. Um, yeah, no one can make you feel ourselves. inferior without your consent. That's right, yes. And so especially in love relationships and in, and in friendships, how, you know, if, if if we don't feel confident in ourselves, then our relationships aren't going to be as healthy as they can be. And so we need to know what we value, and then we need to allow other people what they value and trust that we can get through whatever needs to be gotten through. So when Saturn turns direct in the, in the middle of July around the 17th, um, people are going to Maybe, you know, you never know how things manifest in life because everybody's chart is different. So if you have Scorpio planets or Taurus, Aquarian planets or Leo planets, and there's a whole bunch of us who have um, the baby boomers. We have uh, Pluto in Leo, and so it's going to, um, Saturn's going to be pushing that. And and Pluto is about um, evolution. So Saturn and Pluto, two hard energies. But if we can push and evolve um, how we stand in our relationships, how we um, let down the barriers around our hearts, um, how we let our love um, give us strength rather than fear. We grew up fearing to tell people we love them. We grew, we learned um, that when people leave us, even if we still love them, we can't love them anymore. Ridiculous. You're just gone. You can live it. You can love somebody, and they cannot be there. It can still be somebody that you have great feelings for. So, we need to begin to come into our own about um, how we emotionally um, stand up in relationships. And so that's one thing. And Pluto, I mean, um, Saturn will be in Scorpio until the end of the year, and then 
it will be going into Sagittarius in the beginning of next year, which will be a whole different energy. But so okay. for the next um, half a year, it's up to us to really um, look at how we deal with intimacy and see if we're afraid or if we're strong. Well, at least we and have a lot of time to work on that. Yeah, well, we've been there for two years already, so we've been working hard on it for a while. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, no, this has been going on. Saturn goes through a sign every two and a half years, it takes. And Saturn um, says, please pay attention to this right now. Uh, This is really important. Saturn is like the reality principle. And so when it goes through a sign, everybody sort of can deal with those issues. And once again, how you deal with them depends on how conscious you are and and really, you know, where 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 Scorpio is in your chart and, and how it affects you. Okay. 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 Well, so then well can I can I ask you a question about Saturn? Um, I, sure. it, it, you made me think about uh, a person's Saturn return. And what is that exactly? I mean, is that always a time of upheaval? You know, I mean, don't we go through one twice in our life or something like that? Yes. Two or three times. The, the orbit of Saturn takes 28 to 30 years to get back to the place it began. So very much like the moon cycle, it's a 20, um, just as the moon cycle is around 28 degrees, 28 days, Saturn is 28 years. And so, um, and, and even in psychology, they, they know that around 28 to 30 is, the, is a big passage in life. It's time to grow up. So the first Saturn return occurs around 28 to 30. It's always a little wobble time because um, orbits aren't exactly round, and so sometimes it's longer than others. Um, and so that's the first time we really get hit with, I'm not a kid anymore. Oh, my God, I've got to get my life together. So if you, I always tell older people, men or women, if you are going out with someone younger than you, make sure they're past their Saturn return so they at least have a feeling like they have a sense of who they are. Right, the second right. Saturn return is around 56, okay, in the mid-50s. And that's more of a maturing time. Um, at least when I had mine, it, was very, it very much felt like, oh, this is, this is just who I am. This is really wonderful because Saturn deals with responsibility and maturity. So it doesn't, well, I mean, for my first Saturn return, I actually moved from New Orleans to California. And I'm about ready to have my second Saturn return, and I just wondered if it always means some sort of upheaval or if it can be subtle. It can be subtle. It isn't necessarily an upheaval. Um, Back when I was um, 28, I started Jungian Jungian therapy. I started working with my dreams. It was really... A wonderful time for me. Okay. And I ended up going to the Young Institute. So um, it isn't. It's just a level of maturity. And so if you are settled where you are, then it's more about coming into your own power. Okay. I always think Saturn rules the root chakra. I know different astrologers and different systems say different planets rule the different chakras. But to me, Saturn is the groundedness and so it's where we're rooted so um so it can be it's not necessarily a oh this is the happiest time of my lifetime but it doesn't necessarily have to be a miserable or upheaval a miserable upheaval 
It okay. can just be a maturing, like good wine. Think of yourself as maturing a good wine. <laughs> well, you know, coming out to California was probably the best thing I did. But you know, I'm, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm not looking to do anything, you know, so drastic as that this time around. So anyway, I just, right. I was thinking, gee, I hope well, I'm, I won't I'll get have to forced look at into something. No, no, huh? I'll have to look at your chart. We'll have to look at your chart. Another okay, time, okay. <laughs> okay, and we'll see how it's going to affect you. It usually affects you wherever your Saturn is placed in your natal chart. Um, and um, so, obviously, because it's returning there. And so, it, will, um, it, it, it might affect you in terms of your money or your kids or your job or, your, or moving. It can do anything. Okay. Um, for me, it's for me. It was in the fourth house, which could have been a move, but it's also the emotional body. And working on my dreams changed my emotional body. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Okay. It, really so, interesting. I, I mean, it, I wish this were more of an exact science. <laughs> well, you know, part of it is an exact. It's a science and an art. Um, it's a science because it is mathematical, and the art comes in with. Each person is different. How does this affect each person? And it depends on your level of consciousness, how it's going to affect you. If you're unconscious, it will come at you from the outside. If you're conscious, it will be an inner um, flowering and and development. Okay. Um, Well, Kathy, I I see that um, that Dan has popped up on the switchboard, but um, I I think he will grant us a couple more minutes. I I would really like you to tell listeners about the Sophia Center uh, in Las Vegas and uh, in your book before we have to say goodnight to you. Okay. Well, just quickly, I wanted to mention one more thing. I think it's the 20th of July, um, Jupiter, which is the planet of expansion and luck and faith, you know, Jupiter, big, um, it's moving from Cancer into Leo. And so uh, it stays about a year in, in a sign. So for the past year, it's been in the sign of Cancer, which has made us more attuned to our emotional body, our homes, our families, and our needs. But now it's going to go into Leo, the sign of self-expression. So it should be interesting for all of us. And maybe we'll talk next time in, in August about it. Okay. So, Sophia okay. Center. Um, here in Las Vegas, um, a group of wonderful women have gotten together, and we have opened a center for goddess studies in Las Vegas, of all places. And we had a beautiful ritual opening, and, 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 and Ava from the um, goddess Temple of South County came and, and Candace Ross from the Sekhmet Temple came down and helped us. And it's a beautiful place and I'm in charge of programming and, and we're going to really try to um, offer different programs not only in goddess studies but in intuition, in incense making, in rituals, all of the wonderful things that we learn as we find the goddess again within us. Okay, and uh, yeah, so, so that's that is that is it open uh, every day of the week and is all day and all in into the evening or no, it isn't. It's open three days a week from ten to three, and then a lot of the evenings we're filling in with classes and and we're just beginning. As I said, we just had the grand opening in June um, on the right before the um, summer solstice. So as time goes on, we're hoping to um, develop a lot of programs and classes. We have a teacher, Candace Kant, who's a professor at the co- local colleges. She's been teaching goddess studies there 
and she's doing um, a class on on the third Friday nights on the goddess and on rituals. And on Friday nights, we're going to turn it into a community center so people can just stop in and talk and sit down and play a game of Scrabble. And then we'll have storytelling and music and all different things. It's going to be a great place. It sounds wonderful. Uh, congratulations with it, and I, I, you know, I wish you every success. I, I'm sure you know people will flock there. It, you know, uh, th- there's probably a need for it, and I, I'm glad there I'm is. glad you did it. Yeah, there is. And then just quickly, my book is called Wisdom's Daughters: How Women Can Change the World. And and although I love all of the goddesses, um, this image that I worked with of, of a woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, crowned with stars. It's really an image of all the goddesses together. And, um, and it's about how we use that goddess energy to access our wisdom. And it's very much about um, understanding the symbolic language of the unconscious and the right brain. So, it, so um, it's a lovely book. I'm glad you asked me about it. And, um, and, and I just, hope at some point it will be added to the goddess literature that everybody reads. Okay, and uh, your web, do you have a website in case anyone wants a reading or wants to delve a little bit deeper into any of this? Sure. My, my main website is called wisdomofastrology.com, except there are dashes in the middle of wisdom and of and astrology because there's another astrologer who has a website called Wisdom of Astrology. So think of Wisdom of Astrology, put some dashes in between the words and you have me. Or just look up Kathy Pagano, Pagan with an O, the best name in the whole world. And <laughs> <laughs> I found out it was one of the oldest names that in the world that we have. Really? Wow. Yes. Okay, very cool. Well, Kathy, I love... I Pagan. True, true. Well, yeah. listen, I, I, I love every time you come on the show. Um, you're, you're so good and to the point, and um, I, I, I look forward to having you. So um, it'll be great to have you again next month, and thank you so much for your time, and have a wonderful dream class, because I know that's where you're headed. Okay. Yes. Take care. Okay. Good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, listeners, we have uh, Dan uh, waiting uh, on the line, and I'm going to unmute him now and say hello. Hi, Dan. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for calling in, and and thank you for your patience as we ran just a little bit over. Um, Let me me introduce you to uh, my listeners by way of your bio, and uh, then we'll jump in about your very interesting book, which I've told listeners a little bit about uh, as uh, I uh, shared the intro to the show. So anyway, listeners, we are about ready to uh, hear from Daniel Unterbrink, uh, who has dual degrees in accounting and education from the Ohio State University, and he spent over 20 years in Medicare auditing and retired four years ago. His educational background and work in the Medicare auditing gives him a unique advantage over most scholars. He doesn't believe anything without solid proof. A good auditor doesn't make snap judgments, but rather is guided by the data. I like this. <laughs> That's why he rejects the modern scholarship approach of interpreting history through secondary sources such as the Gospels and the Book of Acts. These secondary sources must be interpreted through the lens of primary sources such as Josephus, uh, Tacitus, do I have that right? Tacitus. 
Tacitus, thank you. Suetonius uh, Pliny, is it Pliny? Pliny. Pliny, and the authentic letters of Paul. Uh, his method raises many questions that can't be answered by traditional interpretations championed by scholars, and as such, he has inte- attempted to steer clear from any one interpretation of Christian origins and has followed the actual historical data in developing his own unique narrative. In 2004, he published his first book titled uh, Judas the Galilean, and this book uh, talked about the theory that the historical Jesus was not the gospel Jesus of Nazareth, but rather a man of history, Judas the Galilean. He followed that up with two other books, New Testament Lies, and the three messiahs, which strengthened his argument based upon more historical data. His new book, Judas of Nazareth, summarizes the findings set forth in the previous books and adds significant insights into the formation of the gospel story as well as the life of Paul. With the help of Barry Wilson, author of How Jesus Became a Christian, Unterbrink, Dave, uh, Dan, hopes to shed new light upon three main questions. Who was the historical Jesus? Who was the historical Paul? And who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Dan, I have to tell you, I really uh, appreciate the way you think because um, I have a really good friend who we've had on the show. Um, well, actually, a couple uh, good friends who've been on the show. Um, by the, One of them is David Hillman. He's a, a scholar, and he reads his own Greek. And we have a wonderful time on the show because he doesn't have to rely on Christian translations either. And, uh, you know, we talk about how uh, it's so important to get the true meaning by going back to the original source because so much of what we know about history has been filtered through somebody else's lens, whether it's a uh, you know, a, a Christian lens or sometimes uh, Victorian culture or, uh, I mean, I know when I was writing my first book, I had trouble uh, finding out about uh, Polynesian, goddess, uh, Polynesian goddesses and traditions because the ethnographers had filtered things through a Christian Victorian lens. So, we're on the same page here. I, I like that you're willing to rethink what we've been sort of spoon-fed as what history really is. Uh, well, you know, I, I personally do not have a working hist- uh, knowledge of Greek, but what I've done is just looked at the English translations and asked, uh, you know, logical questions. Right. So uh, it's a little different approach than than, uh, some scholars, but uh, what I've attempted to do is look at the historical data from the the historian of the time, which was Josephus, and try to make sense of the whole thing. Right. And uh, I I think I've laid it out uh, pretty logically in my book uh, uh, with uh, loads of data for the reader to, to sit down and really, you know, look at it and question themselves. And I think that's the important thing is you just don't take any one person's or any one group's ideas and just just accept them. You know, question everything. Right. And that's what I think I've done in this book. Yeah, be a critical thinker. I mean, you know, we talk all the time about how, for instance, um, archaeology or academia, it's really, uh, you know, it looks through everything through a masculine lens. 
you know, um, and trying, in fact, they will bend themselves into a pretzel to continue to do that rather than sometimes use critical thinking or, uh, or even with, with what we call goddess history. So much of that has been sort of swept beneath the rug that so many people will grow up and won't even know anything about it at all. And you almost have to know where to look for some of this because, you know, these ideas are not out there in mainstream society. So that's what really drew me to your work. So let's, um, let's jump in. Um, I, I know I, uh, at one point, I, I have a book on my shelf that I have not had the time to read yet, but it talked about Moses was maybe a composite of three different individuals. And that really caught my attention. You know, we hear that about the legend of King Arthur, too. You know, maybe King Arthur was really a composite of a number of people, you know, back in, you know, Britain in, in those days. Um, what, where should we start with this for the average reader who doesn't have the benefit of the wealth of your knowledge here? Let's keep it simple, but, you know... Um, you know, let, let's you know share the ideas. You know how, how you got from point A to point B. Okay, first of all, I looked for the uh, uh, historical Jesus in, in the uh, pages of Josephus, who's the, the historian of the time period, and there really isn't any mention of Jesus. There's one passage which most scholars say is a later interpolation, but other than that, uh, Jesus of Nazareth does not exist. And, you know, I, I felt like, well, if a whole uh, religion has been founded on this individual, it, it, to me it's shocking that Josephus didn't even know about him. Well, and, you know, I've was, heard, too, that the Romans were incredible record keepers. And I don't think right. the Romans mentioned him either. Um, no, there are a couple Roman historians that did mention Christians, but like Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, he talked about the Jewish followers of Christ who are always causing disturbances. So, again, these are it's a totally different uh, concept of who the followers of this Messiah was. Uh, these people were Jewish troublemakers or uh, revolutionaries. Right, yeah, they would have been terrorists today. Will just, yeah, they, they will just pass over that and not even mention it. Well, and also, too, when they say followers of Christ, Christ was a title, wasn't it? I mean, Christ doesn't mean the Jesus Christ we think of. It could have meant anybody. It meant Messiah, and Messiah meant king. So uh, Jesus, or Judas the Galilean, as I claim, claimed to be the king. Well, there was already Roman rule, and Rome appointed their own kings. So by claiming to be a king, you are going up against Rome. Right. And the only, the only thing that's going to happen if you go against Rome is you're going to be crucified. Yeah, that's, that's treason exactly probably. Right. That? And, well, that would, they would consider that treason more than likely. Oh, yeah. This was something, uh, you know, uh, that, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the two reasons why, given why uh, Jesus was arrested was he claimed to be king, and he refused to pay, pay taxes to Rome. Okay, Rome, when they uh, invaded places, the reason why they took places over was to extract money to, to tax the people. And Judas led uh, uh, a, a tax revolt against Rome. Okay. So, 
That's one reason why he was put to death. So how did you first connect Jesus of Nazareth as being Judas the Galilean? Okay, the first thing I did, uh, I just happened to, uh, was talking to someone at work, and they're talking about the birth narratives. And in Matthew, uh, Jesus is born in uh, 4 to 6 B.C. with Herod the Great. In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he's born in 6 A.D. So there's like a 10 or 12 year discrepancy between the two accounts. Right. So, you know, I've always known that. But then I said, well, I want to go look into Josephus and see what was going on in those two periods. Well, in 4 B.C., which would correspond to the dating in, in uh, Matthew, Judas the Galilean uh, uh, cleansed the temple, and he was later part of a prisoner release, which probably was the origin of the Barabbas uh, legend. And in 6 AD, uh, he led a tax revolt against Rome. So these two uh, uh, birth scenarios point back to the most important parts of Judas the Galilean's career. So when I saw that, I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So then I now started... Now, let me, let me ask you, Dan, when you say Judas the Galilean, most of us, the only Judas we know is the one that betrayed Christ. Is this the Judas same Judas? No. Judas Iscariot okay. never existed. Okay. And I, and, I, and I prove that in the book, too. Okay. That, that was an invention to place blame upon the Jews for murdering Jesus. Okay, that's, ah. that's, it, that's all that is. Because Judas is is uh, a, a name that represents the Jews. Iscariot is a, a garbling of the word Sakari, which were the followers of Judas the Galilean. And okay. they actually were the ones that persecuted Paul and not uh, not persecuting Jesus. And, okay. and I, I get into the, the problem with Paul, too. Okay. Um now, you also talk about, you, you link the Prince of Peace, and I know that's what we think, we think of that title being associated with Jesus, with the leader of the Zealot Party. Uh, to them, now, we always have, like today, when we look at uh, Zealots across the world, we look at it from a Western viewpoint, okay? The people that are creating problems for us they look at things much differently. Well, the Romans looked at the Jewish insurgents the same way as we look at terrorists. Okay, and, they're, they're, and the Romans wanted to get rid of these people. Now, right. to, to the Jews, uh, the message of equality and uh, uh, loving one another and stuff like that, you know, it was, it was directed, you know, pretty much solely for the Jews, was a very popular message to the Jews not so much to the Romans, because they were very uh, very nationalistic, and uh, that meant that they wanted to get rid of Roman rule. But to the Jews themselves, you know, you know they were preaching a kingdom of God. You know, for instance, um, uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, everybody's heard that, and we always think of it as being like a hocus-pocus, and they invented... You're uh, talking about the loaves and fishes story? Yeah, and, you know, food came out of nowhere. Well, right. in reality, what that was was a story of people coming out to see Jesus, and then at the end of the day, Jesus sets an example in front of the people by sharing the little food that they had with certain people around them. Well, that right. 
got other people that had some food with them to share with their neighbors. So the miracle of that whole thing was to share with one another. Right. Uh, and that and that was the, what they considered the kingdom of God. Mm. You know, so socialism. You know, in that sense, he was a <laughs> prince of peace, but to the Romans, he was not. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. To the Romans, he was he he was the uh, the terrorist and uh, and and the zealot party. You're you're saying this. Uh, you're referring to. Um, you know the, you know the the fact that um, how, how would I describe, or, or maybe, you know, why don't why don't you describe it better? Use your own words. Well, we have to remember that uh, Judas the Galileans movement lasted for over seventy years. Okay, when he was alive, he he act, he actually believed that God was in was going to intervene. So they did not. They weren't militant in the fact of of carrying uh, weapons around and murdering people and doing this and that. But as the years went on and conditions got worse and worse, you know, there were splinter groups and then there were more of what you would consider terrorist activities and this and that. But when Judas was around, he expected God to take care of it because that's what the Old Testament promised in, in, his, in uh, his interpretation of it. So he okay. expected God to deliver them or Israel from the Romans. So Dan, um, maybe it's just because I—I I mean, I, I'll admit I've never read the whole Bible cover to cover. I, you know, I read the interesting sections that relate to stuff I'm interested in. But why? I, I, and I'm assuming I'm making this assumption because I have not really heard a lot about uh, Judas, um, uh, you know, the Galilean. Is it is it just me, or is this a name that isn't on mainstream lips? It's not on mainstream um, lips simply because the Bible itself has uh, delegitimized him. In the book of Acts, uh, there there's a passage in Acts chapter five where it actually mentions Judas the Galilean, but it it calls him like a one hit wonder that. Once, once he was killed, his followers were scattered, and you know, so therefore he was not from God. Right. But in reality, his his movement lasted for seventy some years. So he wasn't a one hit wonder. According to Josephus, he was the most important uh, person in the first century Israel. So, so was was he ahead. considered was he considered a Messiah? Did they think he was yeah. the one? To his disciples, he was the Messiah. Yes, and 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 I believe I but remember the reading. That wrote the Gospels were not his disciples. That's the problem. Okay, and and I want to go there next. Um, but I, I I remember in when I was reading Holy Blood, Holy Grail, there were a lot of people who were considered to be messiahs that way back then. But we yeah. sort of get the idea that Jesus was like the one and only. I, I mean, do you agree? Yeah, there were there were several. Um, Josephus uh, mentions uh, three or four right after the death of Herod the Great, because Herod the Great was a very uh, powerful king. And after he died, his son was pretty inept. So at that time, there were several other uh uh, Messiah figures that arose, and one of them was Judas the Galilean. The others were killed, you know, pretty much right when they, 
uh, started, but Judas lasted for a, quite a while. Okay. He was eventually he eventually was killed, but. Um, uh, so you followed. contend that the Jesus that we all think about didn't really exist at all. So would that also mean his his mother Mary and Mary Magdalene that that's all um, you know just a story as well? Um, I think there's probably some truth. In, well, of course he had a mother, you know. But the Judas the Galilean was a married man. He had he had uh, sons. Uh, two of his sons were crucified, which is interesting. And they were also named uh, James and Simon, and they were hmm. in prison the same time as uh, Simon Peter and James of the New Testament uh, Acts were also in prison. So I, I'm. I think they were the same the same group. Um, there there are so many things in in the Acts and the New Testament that you can you can look at and compare it to Josephus and go, man, those are identical occurrences. But some time frames have been changed. Uh, occasionally, a name will be changed, but the, the actual things that are going on are the same things. So you're saying Simon and Simon and James, the sons of Judas the Galilean that were crucified, you think that they inspired the Jesus's two apostles by the same name? Uh, well, they in, inspired the uh, the uh, uh, in, I think it's Acts chapter 12, which talks about the imprisonment of Peter and James, who were the two two of the apostles. Yeah, I think okay. those, those two were patterned after uh, the sons of Judas the Galilean, yes. I see. Okay. Um, and so any thoughts on, on the Mary Magdalene part of the story? Um, I, I really do believe that Judas the Galilean most likely, you know, he was married, and there's a, probably a very good chance it might have been Mary Magdalene. There is no way to know for sure. Right. But there's so many traditions about her and uh knowing that the man was actually married you know most people argue whether or not he was even married well there there was only one group in israel that didn't marry and that were that was the essenes and and uh judas the galilean and even uh jesus of nazareth from the gospels was not an essene so they they all married and the only person that didn't marry was paul the apostle so the celibate Jesus is based upon the celibate Paul, not the actual historical Messiah who is Judas the Galilean. Okay, all right. Um, and so, well, another big character associated with Jesus of Nazareth is John the Baptist. Right. So does that mean John the Baptist was a figment of, you know, of Christianity's imagination too? No, no. John the Baptist was a real person. Uh, Josephus talks about him, and he, the only time he mentions John the Baptist was in 36 A.D., and he mentions him um, um, being killed by Herod Antipas. Now, the dating is very important because that's 36 A.D. That is after the traditional uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth dies, because Jesus oh. of Nazareth supposedly dies 30 to 33 A.D., well, John the Baptist, according to Josephus, doesn't die till 36, and that also is supported by the Slavonic Josephus, which is another document that says it was around 36 
A.D. But, so right but there, mainstream, you, mainstream thought is John the Baptist died before Jesus did. Right. They wrote, okay. they wrote John the Baptist out of the story, essentially. According so that to Jesus could have center stage. Right. According to Josephus, John the Baptist was so powerful with the people that, that Herod Antipas was afraid of him that he might raise a rebellion. So instead hmm. of risking that, he had John put to death. So that's so, totally different than the traditional viewpoint, but that's what Josephus writes. So, so Dan, why create this figure of Jesus? I mean, uh, I, I mean, where? I guess you know. Forgive my ignorance here, but if he is a figment of, you know, if he if he's a fictional character, you know, when did the the lies begin and why? Okay, there were. In the first century, early first century, there was the movement founded by Judas the Galilean. Uh, Paul becomes a member of that movement, but then he is working in the Gentile world, and then he comes up with his own thinking. In fact, uh, it was his own revelation from the risen Christ. This, he, he's actually creating a different gospel, and he even admits that in the, in the book of Galatians. So Paul is creating a totally different movement. He's creating one for the Gentiles where uh, Judas the Galilean and John the Baptist were preaching to the Jews. So okay. this new, this new uh, message to the Gentiles was, uh, Paul kept it uh, kind of a, a secret from the guys in, that were in charge, like uh, Peter and, and James. But once they found out about it, they removed him from the movement. And that can be found in the book of Galatians. You just have to read. You just have to read it for what it actually says. Okay. You know, all the Jews turned their backs on Paul when they found out what he was teaching, and what he was teaching was a totally different gospel. So, are you saying then what we believe is the Christianity of Jesus uh, is really just something created by Paul? Exactly. Paul, so it's the Church uh, of Paul. <laughs> it really is. I mean, he and I, I've, the, on the uh, Gospel of Mark, I've gone through and I've shown point by point the the message that's in the uh, the gut to, uh, Jesus of Nazareth from the Gospel of Mark is mirroring what Paul is preaching, but totally <laughs> against what the Jews believed at the time. And the Jews were the followers of Jews, the Galilean, who was the historical Jesus. Okay, so if this, you know, and, and I don't, I, you know, I'm, I don't doubt your uh, research, um, but I would, but questions pop up, and why didn't the Jews, you know, I mean, like even today's Jews, why do they not spill the beans? You know, why do they let, huh? I don't, well, see, in 70 A.D., the Jews, for a long time, hounded Paul, and he was pretty much out of the picture. But in 70 A.D., the entire Jewish nation was destroyed by Rome in a war. So that created a vacuum at which time Paul reemerges, and now he has free reign because there are no longer any members of the, uh, the uh, Jewish Jesus movement or the followers of Jews the Galilean that are alive. They've all been slaughtered. So at that point, he creates a new movement. And you got to remember, he has, he's collecting funds from these people. It was a huge moneymaker. You know, and he was very good at uh, collecting money. 
you can read right. it uh, in in his letters every every one of his letters is there's a plea for money so he was very all right, good so, at collecting all right so all right so let's 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 not let's not talk about the jews of ancient times because they like you said they were killed off and a vacuum was created but what about jewish scholars a little bit later in history that recognized what you were saying why did they just you know why didn't they expose christianity for the lie that it is i don't think uh, too many jewish scholars know about this uh, robert eisenman who has uh, endorsed my book he has written, uh, in fact, I've used his uh, writings and have built upon them. He's written an awful lot about this. But what, what upsets people is it, it challenges this big moneymaker, which is the church. Sure. You know, even most religious scholars are employed by, a lot of them employed by the, the uh, churches. Right. You know, so... You know, they're not going to say anything, even if they knew. In fact, I don't think most of them really uh, uh, know much about this. But uh, if they did, they'd probably keep their mouth shut. Right, right. It's it's just, you know, it's, you know, it's just so annoying. <clears throat> um, or, or, you know, you think about, you know, scholars and universities. You know, now maybe they can't upset the apple cart because if, you know, people complained about what they're teaching, the university wouldn't get money. It seems like it all, all always goes back to money, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, and there's, there's fear involved. You know, I've listened to professors, you know, just from students coming in and asking about religious questions, they get very nervous and they're very careful of what they say. Now, a scholar that would publish a book like I did could be in real trouble. Yeah, yeah, and and you know what? And I applaud you because uh, coming from where I sit, you know, with the uh, with the you know different information that you know women who study women's studies and goddess spirituality, what we think we know that the mainstream world doesn't know, and how you know Christianity has suppressed um, you know you know goddess spirituality and that sort of thing. It, it makes it makes me angry, you know, um, and I, I just wish there were more courageous people who were willing to speak the truth rather than, um, you know, just sort of be sheeple or puppets or on the dole, you know. Um, it's like, where's their integrity? You know, where's where's well, their dedication to the truth of history? And but, but, um, most people see what I've done is I've looked at the primary sources and then looked at the Gospels after the primary sources. If you're looking at the Gospels as being the Word of God and that they're perfect, you look at that as as your guide. And I think that's part of the problem with scholarship is they 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 take the the Gospels like at the Word of God instead of looking at them objectively. Well, so, but, you know, if they were the word of God, there wouldn't be so many discrepancies. Wouldn't you think he would have got the story straight? <laughs> you would think, but, <laughs> you know, but if, I guess uh, you can always explain things away. Yeah, if 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 you want to. Um, so, um, now, I, I, I wanna, I'm looking at some of you, the talking points that you sent me, and I, I want to make sure we don't miss some important stuff. Um you talk about, you comment on your interpretation of Matthew 
uh, 20, uh, 20 through 38, and you claim that the woman in the story was Jesus' wife and the sons were their sons. Was there, was there more to that uh, that you maybe wanted to say about Judas the Galilean's um, wife and sons? Okay, well, this goes back to the what we were talking about earlier, where uh, Judas the Galilean's two sons were crucified. Mm-hmm. And in that passage in Matthew, the uh, the wife comes to... Uh, to, uh, Judas and has her two sons with them and he says you know can you drink the same cup that I'm going to uh, drink and they say yes and the, and the cup that he was going to drink was crucifixion ah. and these two sons are the ones that were crucified okay interesting so interesting. I, I really do believe that matches up with the passage in Acts 12 which talks about the imprisonment of, of Peter and James which is a cover story of the real event, which was the uh, crucifixion of Judas the Galilean's two sons. But hmm. the way it's written uh, would would have two uh, the mother of two uh, unrelated disciples having the audacity to come up and ask of the religious leader. It, it wouldn't even be done in our day. It wouldn't have been done at that time. On the other right. hand... If his wife comes up and wants her sons to sit at the right and left hand, you can see that possible uh, scenario. Yeah. You know, they yeah. she wants her sons to be next to the king. Yeah. You know, so so I, I think that's probably the best interpretation of that passage. It's the only one that makes sense because the only two that were the only two sons that were crucified were Judas uh, the Galilean sons. Okay, um, and. You know, what is, you know, does the church have any comment on Judas, you know, the Galilean? I mean, do they, uh, I mean, do they pay any attention to him at all? I I almost wonder why they didn't take him out rather than leave these clues behind. Well, the thing of it is, you got all these clues, and there are a ton of them, but I'm the first one that has put them together. (laughs) So for 2,000 years, it's, it's worked perfectly. You know, they, 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 did, they did leave clues behind. But when they left a clue, for instance, when they left Judas the Galilean in the book of Acts, they really screwed it up. Because in, uh, uh, it talks about uh, a, a Pharisee named Gamaliel in 35 A.D., according to the book of Acts. He says that uh, in, in uh, Judas and then uh, Judas the Galilean were put to death because they were not uh, doing the work of God. Well, Thutis, according to Josephus, uh, was put to death in 45 A.D., which would have been 10 years in the future. Right. Okay? And then it wasn't Judas the Galilean that died after Thutis. It was the sons of Judas the Galilean that right. were put to death. So the, right, the, right. the Acts passage messes it up on so many different levels but yet people just accept it as being the truth. Yeah. But in reality, it, it what it did, it, it, it's a libel against Judas the Galilean because he was the most respected, the most influential uh, teacher of first century Israel. And the book of Acts makes him out to be a you know, one-hit wonder that uh, you know nobody would ever listen to. And that's mm. not the way history was. 
Well, and you know, and and you have to feel sorry for the guy in a way, you know. That uh, imagine, you know, you spend your life uh, <clears throat> dedicated to something like that, and then and then you're just a footnote in history. <laughs> exactly, and it's not even a good footnote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Wow, wow. Um, <clears throat> okay, so you claim that Paul was a Herodian named Saul. In Josephus writing, so are we talking about the Paul and you know Paul, who was the former Saul, the tax collector? Uh, Saul, um, Paul was in the Book of Acts before he converts. He is named Saul, and then about Acts 13, he he becomes Paul. So it's the same person. Saul and Paul are the same person. person. Now, according to Josephus, uh, Saul. Josephus of Saul was a was a Herodian, a member of the royal family. So he was related to King Agrippa and some of the the kings of the time of the, of the Jews. So he was he was from a very powerful background, which is very unlike the traditional story of him being a tent maker from the city of Tarsus. You know that did not exist. He was a member so, of the royal family. So maybe that's why he was able to. Uh, be successful. I mean, he had this, you know, he sort of had this, um, you know, it wasn't like he was a peasant in the streets. Right. I mean, he, he yeah. knew the right people. He had contacts. Um, well, you know, he had it. The thing is, uh, with, uh, with Paul, in the New Testament, at a young age, supposedly, he uh, persecutes the uh, Christians after the stoning of Stephen. Okay, and, and scholars have always wondered how somebody from Tarsus could have so much influence. Okay, but that same story, the stoning, really occurred in 62 A.D., not 35 A.D. According to Josephus, James, the brother of Judas the Galilean, is is stoned. They they killed him, and then after that, Saul persecutes uh, poor people or the the church. After that, so. He's he's persecuting the Christians, the Jewish Christians in 62 A.D., not 35 days. So he's persecuting these people after he's been removed from the movement, right. which is very, very um, unlike the uh, traditional story. So, is, so you think it was about retribution? I think, yeah, I think there, I think there was a lot of hatred there. And, and one other thing that this Saul did... You know, in in Acts, Paul ends up going to Rome to meet with Caesar. Well, in Josephus's history, Saul goes to Greece to meet with Nero, hmm. and he and this was in 67 A.D., which is like seven or eight years after the uh, Book of Acts. But he was there in Jerusalem when James was murdered, and he also then went to meet Nero. After Nero had had uh, persecuted the Jewish Christians in Rome after the Great Fire, after Nero had murdered his own wife by kicking her in the stomach while she was pregnant, Saul still met with the man. Hmm. And that's it. So it, it, that's so it seems like right. to me they really... Uh, you know, it's, I guess in the in the New Testament or whatever, they they really had to rehabilitate Paul. Because if you if you connected, 
you know, him to the way you're describing him. He was a despicable guy, probably. Yes, he really was. <laughs> and even some of the, the, the later, uh, the Ebionites, who were the remnants of the, of the original Jewish movement, they called him an apostate from the law. They had nothing good to say about him. Huh. So uh, there, there really wasn't much good to say about him, and he was rehabilitated. The book of Acts is essentially a whitewash of history. They change things. They move things around. They make him the hero of the story. Well, in reality, he was, he was the villain. He was the traitor, not Judas Iscariot. Yeah. So when Paul gets his ret- he he gets his revenge by writing the Gospel of Mark. Or so he, if it's not Paul that wrote it, it was because Paul was still alive. The Gospel of Mark was written around seventy to seventy two A.D. Most scholars will agree on that. Paul was still he he traveled to uh, to Greece to meet Nero in sixty seven. He's still he's still a healthy man. He's traveling the world. Right. So. Tradition has Paul dying in Rome in 64 A.D., but, you know, he was still alive in 67. So now what's the significance of the Gospel of Mark with Paul? Uh, Mark was the first gospel that was written. So what I'm claiming is that much of uh, the Jesus of Nazareth story is a combination of the framework of Judas the Galilean and some of the events that happened but overlaid with the life and teachings of Paul also. So essentially, Jesus of Nazareth is a Pauline figure. I see. So wow. He, he's no longer the Jewish Messiah. He's essentially now a, a, a Messiah for the world, for the Gentiles. Yeah, so because he's, he's created a he Gentile has. movement, but they're putting the, a, the face of a Jew on it. Right. But there really was a historical Messiah, Judas the Galilean. So you can't you can't just say that there was no Messiah. There really was, but Jesus of Nazareth is just a composite that was created by uh, kind of the mind of Paul. And he, you know, he was a genius in a sense. But, uh, you know, I, well, you know, he sounds diabolical. You know, he kind of. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I was. was his philosophy was. To the Jews, I'll act like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'll act like a Gentile to win them over. And get now, their money. Well, whatever it's going to take. That's why it took the, the Jews a long time to figure out what his game was, because when he would talk to them, he'd tell them one story, but then he'd go to somebody else and do something else. That so it was like he was the ultimate con man. He really was. <laughs> and... It's been going on for a long time. Well, and, and you know, it, I, I guess it, it's just the mood I'm in tonight. <laughs> but it kind of feels like, uh, you know, it, it, it just seems so unfair that the con man could have duped the world for so long. And here, the Judas, the real Messiah, you know, he's this... Um, you know, he, he's he got this derogatory footnote in history. I mean, it, it's like, where's the justice? <laughs> well, it's like so many other things. There is no justice, I guess. I'm wow. just hoping that people will read the book, give it a fair shot, because I think if they give it a fair shot and compare it to uh, other people's writings, I think they will uh, appreciate what I've done. 
So um, how do you think your theory affects, um, you know, maybe current-day Christianity? I mean, does it, I, I mean, I think it sort of turns it all on its head, but um, do, you, do you think otherwise? I think it does in a sense. For instance, uh, Paul's philosophy of grace, where all you do is believe, that was totally un-Jewish. The Jews believed in doing to be something. You know, instead of, be, instead of believing, you be. You, you are that person. You're, you're a good person. So in a sense, uh, people's behaviors won't get any worse if they follow what I'm talking about because essentially the, the actual Jewish Messiah taught people to believe. He taught people to share with one another. Uh, so everything that he taught in that realm, you know, we can use today. Right. The idea of just believing something and on the, oh, I'm saved, that spawns a lot of bad behavior. Well, I mean, look, I used to, I, I was, I was born a Catholic, and I mean, it was so obvious that uh, you know people went to church on Sunday and screwed their neighbor on Monday. You know, exactly. but, um, but it, under under Paul's philosophy, though, of forgiveness and uh, being saved when, once you believe. You can do whatever you want. In fact, in the First Corinthians, Paul even talks about his his uh, disciples being worse than the pagans <laughs> because they're it, acting so horribly. Well, I mean, that's the philosophy that that's what you're going to have. Well, you know, look at all of those these evangelical TV preachers who you know get on TV and cry and ask to be saved. So it's like all you got to do is, you know, you can sin all you want, just go into confession and you wash it all away. Exactly. That's it's a Where very it seems, philosophy. Well, yeah, and I mean, and, and you know, I honestly, I hadn't really thought about it in this context before. But you're saying, what, but the Jewish way is more to walk your talk, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. And, as, as opposed and, to just, give, you know, believe and be saved. In, you know, and, right. and go to confession and wash away your sins. Right. Because the Jews believed they were already uh, in a relationship with God, so they didn't need a, a human sacrifice. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, a human sacrifice was abhorrent to God. So why, why would something that God told the Jews never to do, why would he do it with his quote-unquote only son? And, totally and, and you know, Dan, I, until you just uttered those words, human sacrifice, you know, I never really thought of the crucifixion as that before, but now you're absolutely so right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, there are a lot of questions that I've answered in my book, and then there are others that, you know, I think we, I think we can go even further, you know, in uh, – I, I'm, I'm hoping this is just the beginning. So, so um, just you know, you don't have to go into a lot of detail. But what are sort of, or a couple of the other tantalizing clues you have that might point to um, other uh, realizations of uh, Judas being, uh, or or, or any anything that you know that sort of would reshape what we accept as normal in history or or true. Actually, with the uh, um, let's look at uh, Paul. Um, 
everything from chapter 21 on to chapter 28 in the book of Acts is is following either the life of Saul, and there are like four different instances which I've I've uh, put in the book, or it, when Paul is shipwrecked on the way to Rome, there's an exactly the same story of. Uh, Josephus being shipwrecked on the way to Rome, and kind of the same things are going on. So I think the author of of Acts kind of uh, borrowed that story and incorporated it into his little concoction of the new Paul. Right. It's kind of like we have the 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 flood story uh, copied. You know, we have. I mean, in Christianity, borrows so much from the pagans too. I mean, it's it's all just seems to be plagiarized. Yeah, and there's one other, I think, neat little, this is a little uh, tidbit, but it, it uh, remember earlier we were talking about Paul, if he was from Tarsus, didn't have any influence in Jerusalem. Well, there's, a, there's a, uh, a passage in Acts, I think it's chapter 23, where it says Paul's uh, sister's son finds out things and helps Paul escape, the, the Jews. So they talk about, now, Logically, if Paul was from Tarsus, his sister was from Tarsus. Yeah. Okay. The family was from Tarsus. What would her nephew? What would what would Paul's nephew have uh, any contacts in Jerusalem? You know, it just doesn't make sense. But Saul, the Herodian, his nephew was the temple treasurer. He would have known everything that was going on, and he would he would yeah. have contacts everywhere. So you know. These, these are the little connections that when you really study the, uh, the New Testament and the book of Acts, and you start digging into it, you go, wait a second, this doesn't make sense? Let's find out what does make sense. You and, know? you know, and I think it's difficult, too, because everybody seemed to have the same names back then. Yeah, that, that's one thing. Is, it is kind of confusing. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to keep everybody straight because it's not like it's, you know John. You know John Smith and John Doe and John Brown. You know. Um, you know. It's just they it's always just seem to say John. Like you're supposed to know which one. <laughs> right. Well, you know, at least the in the New Testament they do have uh, nicknames for the uh, people. You know, like ah. uh, uh, they were the Sons of Thunder. Ah. Again, here, here's an here's another one. The Sons of Thunder. Now I claim that the sons of thunder were the sons of Judas the Galilean, because Judas the Galilean would have been thunder, the sons of yeah. thunder. In the, in the New Testament, the sons of thunder were uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. In Zebedee, James and John left in the fishing boat and just left him. So that doesn't sound a whole lot like... In fact, uh, Zebedee's wife left him too. Yeah. <laughs> That's thunder, <laughs> right? That right. Yeah. Make sense. But, yeah. So they, in my my theory, thunder is the one with the power, and that yeah. was Judas the Galilean. Well, so, and, and you know, going back to this idea, what would this? Uh, what would your theory? How would your theory affect current day worship of Christianity? I, I don't know. I'm you know maybe maybe it, it's just because of the way I think, but. I, I think a lot of Christians wouldn't care. They're going to believe. They'll just say you're of the devil, you know, or something like that. But 
you know, I, I, I think it would really sort of rock the world of a lot of people to believe that the foundation of their faith is a lie. Um, but I think that ought to be okay. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I think people ought to be able to accept that history is flawed and, you know, people make up stories for power and money and politics and it seems like that's what Paul was doing unless, you know, I mean, do you really think he was in it for the money and the power or do you think he was really trying to help people evolve and be better people? I think he was, I think at the beginning when he first converted, I think he might have he might have been sincere, but I think as time went on, I think he when he got a little bit of power and I think he probably uh was not corrupted the most honest. Of, yeah, I think yeah. I think he became corrupted. Yeah, I don't think he converted with the idea of of being this this monster of a, of a man, but I think he uh evolved into it. And that and it happens today to people. Yeah, you know they might start out good and then and then something bad happens and yeah. they just go down the wrong path. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that happens to some of our politicians. You know, they maybe start off wanting to do good, but then there there's just overwhelming influences, and um, you know, they they just take the wrong path. Yeah, I, I think that's probably what happened with him. Although there was one. One thing that did happen while he was a follower of uh, the, the Jewish Jesus movement in his early days, uh, his cousin Agrippa becomes uh, best friends and an advisor to Caligula, and then he becomes the, the uh, advisor to Claudius after Caligula is assassinated. So here, Paul's uh, kind of like a when he first starts out in the uh, Jewish Jesus movement, he's a lowly worker bee. And now his cousin becomes uh, advisor to the uh, emperor of the world. Yeah. So, you know, could there have been this idea that I want to become more, I want to I want to rise in this organization and do something? And I think that's probably where his revelations from the risen Christ begin because he wants, he wants to have – some power and and i i uh think that, that he might have at one time maybe got together with agrippa and and kind of uh you know tried to maybe pitch his his theory to him about uh being maybe uh, agrippa's prophet a sort of master mastermind well and 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 he's rubbing shoulders with people like nero and caligula <laughs> yeah which is scary. Well, he tells he tells his own disciples to uh, that the government is there to do good, and this is a, during the time of Caligula and Nero. You know these monsters just go. You want to follow these guys? These guys they they were just crazy, right? Crazy men. You wow. know, and he's telling his his disciples to be you know good soldiers and uh, and and follow these guys and pay their taxes happily. And now Judas the Galilean, on the other hand was fighting against that. Yeah. So, totally well, you know, uh, well, Dan, let me ask you. You know, I interviewed Margaret Starbird, and um, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's Margaret kind Starbird of... Margaret Starbird is a very good friend of mine. Oh, okay, Margaret. Well, you know, the story with Margaret is she started out 
trying to debunk all the Mary Magdalene stuff, and then she became a believer, and now she's like you know one of the you know main t- scholars or teachers associated with the Mary Magdalene story. I, I guess I just wonder what your story is. Um, how did you you know what in, what inspired you to put so much time and effort into uncovering all of this? Well, I actually uh, grew up Roman Catholic, and I wasn't a very good Catholic. But then I I got involved with a uh, a fundamental Christian group, and I I studied the Bible. I mean, I quit my job and, and just read the Bible. That's all I did, you know. And I memorized stuff, and and I was very I was always interested in history. So for a long time, you know, I was doing that. But then eventually, I kind of got myself, I pulled myself away from that because I, it wasn't a, a healthy environment. And, you know, for like 15 or 20 years after that, I, I kind of stayed away from religion, but I was always interested in history. Sure. And about 10, about 10 or 12 years ago, you know, I just started following this Judas the Galilean thing, and I just, I couldn't let go of it. Yeah. And actually, it took me eight, I think eight years, I'd published three books, and then Margaret Starbird, she contacted me, and she's re- she'd read my, my stuff, and she says, I want to get you in touch with some other scholars. Mm-hmm. So Margaret was uh, instrumental in, in introducing me to Barry Wilson, who is a professor of religion at York University in Toronto. And then the three of us worked together on this book. Margaret did a lot of the uh, proofing, and she had questions, and Barry always had questions. Uh, so they, they have, and I've, I've put them, you know, Barry's wrote the foreword to the book, and Margaret's got a, 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 a little bit uh, blurb on the back of the book. And then I've also uh, worked with uh, Professor Eisenman also a little bit. And, you know, so it, it took, a long time. It took me eight years before I got anyone that was influential at all that would even look at my stuff. Yeah. You know. So, but I kept plugging away and plugging away, and finally, I've at least got some people to start looking at it, and the ones that have looked at it like it. So yeah. Well, I'm just and hoping to get more people. Well, and I guess I'm I'm just curious as the people that you used to you know you used to be in in church with. Um, have any of them discovered your book? Not that I know of. In fact, you know, it's been like 20 or 30 years since I've even seen some of the people, and I live in the same town. Right. Uh, Columbus is a pretty big town. But uh, I haven't I haven't seen anybody. Nobody's contacted me. So it's like once you're gone, yeah, you're forgotten. Yeah, you're burning in hell someplace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But, you know, it would be curious just to see if, you know, having them having known you, you know, it's not like you're some oh, some crazy liberal in California or something. You know, having known you and, you know, and, and shared um, sacred space with you, um, if it wouldn't be eye-opening for them to read your book, you know. I think it would, but I'm I'm – not confident that many of them will. I, yeah. I don't see a lot of uh, real conservative, Bible-thumping people reading the book. I really don't see that. But I do. Yeah, because they they don't want their thinking questions. challenged. 
Right. And I, there might be a few that do. Yeah. I, I don't think too many will. Right. But I think there are a lot of people that like to think and analyze things. I, those are the people I, I want to... No. I, I mean, I know how that is. I mean, I have evangelical cousins who still live in Louisiana, and they will not even read my books. They probably think they'd burn in hell for opening up the pages, you know, uh, simply because it's just diametrically opposed to all of their belief system. You know, they can't even bring themselves to read it, um, which is sad, really, you know, that that... Um, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I thrive on new information. You know, I want to know if I got it right or got it wrong. <laughs> you know, um, I, I just wish more people were like that. Yeah. But, yeah, you've got a radio show. You can influence people, um, at least open up, you know, some avenues that people can can see some new ideas. Yeah, plant some seeds so for some new ideas. Yeah. That's sort of the whole point. Well, Dan, do you um, let's make sure we say the titles of your books again, and do you have a website uh, if anybody wants to go look into this a little bit more closely? Yeah, the, the book is Judas of Nazareth, and my website is danielunterbrink.com, and the book can be purchased on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a uh, lot. And if you Google my name too, you'll be able to see all the places where you can buy the book. But uh, um, it's really a, fairly inexpensive, and uh, I, I think there's information there that you won't see anywhere else. Well, I want to so, see the movie. <laughs> I would love to see the movie. I'd love to see it on the History Channel, but or you know, like. The Learning Channel has Honey Boo Boo on now. I know, I know. Isn't it a shame? I, I mean, it, I, that's another thing that's a pet peeve of mine, you know, that education and intelligence is suddenly a thing to be ashamed of, and we wear ignorance like a badge of honor, you know? I, I know, it is sad. So I was hoping maybe somebody like the History Channel or something would pick something like this up. And it still, you know, it might down the road, but... Uh, there you go. Well, you probably got to look at PBS. Or, or you know what? You yeah. know who's not afraid of stuff like this? Because, you know, uh, here in the United States, um, there, I, I, I really do think the networks and everything, they're too afraid of the Christian zealots who are going to picket and boycott and all of that stuff. The BBC... They are not afraid because I, th you know, there's, I think they're more secular over there yeah. in in Europe, and you know they don't, you know, Christians don't have them by the throat. Well, that's a good so idea. That, that's that's where you send your proposal, the BBC. Um, well, Dan, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with this. You know, keep in touch, and um, you know, if if you write anything else down the road, or you uh, stumble across any new discoveries. Uh, please, uh, you know, shoot me an email again, and uh, we'll have another chat. I'd appreciate it. I'd love to have the opportunity. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much. I appreciate your time tonight to be on the show. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, I hope you all had fun with that. I know I sure did. And um, we still have a few minutes left. So I got a great review for my new book, Goddess Calling, and uh, I want to share it with you if uh, you don't mind. It's a quickie. Uh, this one was um, on, the, on the blogs, 
the blog site Goddess Priestess, um, and uh, the person who um, uh, who wrote it uh, was was I believe um, Wendy. I'm looking for her name here, and it is just not jumping out at me. Uh, but anyway, at the goddesspriestess.com uh, website, uh, this is one of the places where um, I was named one of the most influential people in goddess spirituality because of the radio show. Uh, anyway, here is a short review of Goddess Calling. Uh, she says, I've been a huge fan of Karen Tate's radio show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, for several years. The voice of Karen and her versatile, diverse, talented, inspirational guests keep me company uh, every week on my commute to teach at a military base. Goddess Calling sounds just like Karen. I could hear her voice in my head throughout the many essays compiled in the book. Readers familiar with her radio show will recognize content themes and quotes as they appear sprinkled through the text. There are two features that set the book apart from many of its other modern counterparts. First, the explicit recognition and discussion of the connection between the personal and political. Goddess is more than a nice idea or a friendly, beautiful archetype. She can transform the world. Second, the third section of the book contains a nice section of guided meditation exercises, perfect for use with groups. So Goddess Calling is both beneficial to the solitary goddess woman uh, or man, helping to contextualize their personal, private experiences with cultural, political, and social realities, and for the ritual priestess as she seeks to plan services, retreats, or programs for members of the community. And uh, she lists uh, one of my quotes as one of uh, her favorites. And my quote is, I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about stretching ourselves, challenging ourselves, trying to accomplish things we might feel are a bit beyond us. It's a journey of becoming and of growing we all must take, and we cannot be afraid of the journey. It's the journey that steals us. It's the trying, the praying, the stumbling, and picking yourself back up, the seeking, the very act of doing that staves off fear and fills us with hope. The destination doesn't necessarily hold the reward. The reward comes from that which has been gleaned from the journey. The destination is just where you take a breath, reflect, and relax after the journey has molded you. It's where we take a respite before beginning again to meet the next challenge or climb the next mountain. So thank you so much uh, for that uh, wonderful review. And um, I'm sorry I don't have uh, Wood Priestess's actual name uh, on this printout, um, but my, my thanks uh, very much for that nice review. And um, if you're new to the show, um, I, I can tell you a little bit about uh, my book, uh, Goddess Calling. It sort of fills the gap in the lack of devotional and inspirational literature within uh, the growing movement of devotees of the sacred feminine. It really does connect the dots between goddess religion and social justice and politics, uh, namely sacred feminine liberation theology. It gives us an alternative to the patriarchy we live in because if we dissolve patriarchy, if we're tenacious like water wearing away rock, we do have something to replace it with and it's not just patriarchy and a skirt. Goddess Calling has been endorsed by Jean Houston, Selena Fox, Barbara Walker, Z Budapest, and other folks who we all think very highly of. So uh, please, uh, buy Goddess Calling, uh, if you will. 
And uh, remember I mentioned uh, that there would be an automatic airing of my Sekhmet meditation when I was on vacation last week in honor of our great mother, the Lady of Tenacity Manifested. Uh, it was a tribute to her during the summer solstice. Well, there was some sort of technical glitch. Uh, I guess I can blame it on Mercury Retrograde. So I'll be doing that as an extra show perhaps early next week. Uh, and if you can't wait and you want to uh, experience the Sekhmet Summer Meditation sooner, uh, go to my website, KarenTate.com. Uh, and just go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down. It's free. You don't have to buy it. Uh, just scroll down, and uh, you just can just click on it and enjoy. Uh, next week, uh, my guest will be Trista Hendren. She's the author of beautiful books for children called Mother Earth and the Girl God. Also, Anne Scott will be with us. Uh, Anne is the founder of Dream Weather Foundation. It's a program in Northern California that uh, provides programs for women in different sectors of society using the sacred feminine and spiritual dream work to help them through times of crisis and transition, including homeless women. Um, so before we go tonight, uh, I owe Joe Carson a commercial. So here goes. Hold on, we seem to have a little glitch. Hopefully I can work this out. Hmm. I don't know if you're hearing this or not. Well, I honestly don't know what's happening here uh, where I'm having uh, some sort of technical difficulty. So I guess the best thing for me to do uh, is just to go ahead and close and uh, say thank you, uh, dear listeners. I hope you can hear me. I'm not sure if you can, um, but I will be with you next week. And uh, until then, remember what Gandhi said. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. So until next week, have a great Fourth of July. Good night. <laughs>